Last week, the Church Planning Network Acts 29 fired its CEO, Steve Timmis, for allegations of abuse and bullying. But now there's evidence that Acts 29 president, Matt Chandler, knew about Timmis' abuse. But instead of dealing with it, he fired the whistleblowers. Welcome to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Roy's, and today we're going to be talking about what's happened at Acts 29, but we're also going to be looking at the larger issue of spiritual abuse and bullying in the church and how whistleblowers are often silenced by those in authority. And joining me to do that is a special guest from Australia, Steve McAlpine. Steve is a pastor and absolutely brilliant blogger, but he's also one of several people who courageously spoke out about abuse by former Acts uh, 29 CEO Steve Timmis. And he's been sort of a hub connecting victims of abuse with one another. And we're going to hear all about that story. But before Steve joins me, I want to just take a minute to thank the sponsors of this podcast, Judson University, a university shaping lives that shape the world, and Marquardt of Barrington. And I love partnering with both Judson and Marquardt because they have consistently supported my truth-telling work. And Dan Marquardt, owner of Marquardt of Barrington, is actually someone who blew the whistle on wrongdoing by James McDonald, the former senior pastor of the megachurch Harvest Bible Chapel. And Dan and his brother, Kurt, run a straight-up car dealership where you can expect honesty, integrity, and transparency. So if you're in the market for a newer used car, I highly recommend Marquardt of Barrington Buick GMC. To find them online, just go to Marquardt Buick, spelled M-A-R. Q-U-A-R-D-T dot com. Well, I am so excited to have Steve McAlpine join me today. And as I mentioned, Steve is in Australia, where it's actually, I believe, 14 hours ahead of where we are in Chicago, uh, where I am. So it's actually 1 a.m. recording time as we record this podcast. So Steve, thank you so much for uh, staying up into the wee hours in the morning to do this. And I just really appreciate it. Well, oh, thanks, Julie. It's good to be with you. I'll I'll uh, be my best and brightest for one uh, one o'clock. <laughs> one o'clock start. Well, <laughs> not, not my one o'clock is not my friend generally. <laughs> yeah. Well, one o'clock is not my best time, but uh, maybe you're more of a night owl than I am. And uh, but I know you got a no, nap, no, no. so we're good. <laughs> yes, I did. I'm feel- and I've had a coffee and a glass of water, so I should be good to go. <laughs> very, very good. Well, I will say, over the past few days, I have been reading your blog. It's absolutely fantastic. I feel like I have a new favorite blog now. I mean, it's it's really, really well done. Where you you take these issues that are big in the church, you speak about them in such a, an intelligent way, uh, such an engaging way, but the content is deep. And you've, you've written quite a bit about spiritual abuse and bullying. And I think that's because you've seen it up close. So would you, would you just start off by, by telling your story? I, I know it's your specific story with Steve Timmis, but I think it's indicative of a much larger problem of abuse in the church. Yeah, that, that's exactly right, Julie. And the thing, I guess I've written in the past very sort of uh, guarded comments or, or blog posts about bullying and uh, heavy shepherding and things like that um, that are sort of masked by not putting too much on it uh, simply because it's been my experience and then you get overwhelmed by people responding and saying, hey, I know, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> and it's uh, and now it's sort of come out into the open. People are now going, ah, oh, now I do know what you're talking about. And that's been sobering but also um, encouraging that it's been helpful to people. Uh, because one thing you find when these things happen to you is you feel alone. You think, mm. how have I got myself into the position where I'm sort of like an isolated sheep and someone is um, tearing into me? And uh, that, that was, you know, as I've written those things, that people have resonated that they've had the same experiences. And our experience um, probably didn't start that way, as they never do, but it certainly ended that way. Mm. And uh, that, that was that was you know the key thing for me was how do you say those things without giving everything away, mm. and then things have obviously blown out of the water. Mm. So you were at Steve Timmis's church called the Crowded House, and you were there to learn, yeah. right? And you you liked the model of ministry at least that you thought he was doing, but then you got in a little deeper and wasn't quite what you had bargained for. 
That's exactly right. And we went over there, um, well, it's a good over a decade ago, and sort of late 2006. And we'd, we'd, um, we'd been thinking, writing, or thinking and reading a lot about uh, missional church movements, and uh, there are people in Australia who've done it early, and there's obviously some you know, more famous names like Alan Hirsch, who I know, and uh, he, they'd been, Australia's thinking about how do you reach a very secular context, and Australia is a very secular context. Yeah. And so we had planned to do this. I've been pastoring for a while, and uh, Steve had, I got in touch with him somehow, and he was coming to Australia and stopped off in Perth. And uh, before he left, he said, why don't you come and check it out? And I said, we can come for months. And then he said, you probably need to come for a year. And within six months, I think we were there. We just raised the support, mm-hmm. uh, pretty much packed in everything else we were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, people were very supportive, and we said we're going for a time-bound, year-long experiment to begin with to see how it goes. And uh, that, that launched us on it. Hmm. So what did you see there that concerned you? Yes, well, that's interesting. Uh, you don't go there and see immediate things that concern you. It's interesting that the first weekend we were there, there was a great furore, I suppose, that um, people were, um, someone had already left the weekend that we arrived, and it was someone close to the center of the group, and it was causing a bit of angst. And I thought, wow, what's happened here? Hmm. But the immediate time we went there, it felt very strong community. The families were very close, the young, very young people. I was not quite 40, but I felt ancient to that setting. Hmm. But the first day we were there and the first sermon on the first weekend, my wife did point out to me, she said, just be careful here. She said, I, I'm sensing a very strong um, uh, hand on this by Steve's. And that I didn't pick it as much as my wife did. I was more Labrador puppy dog. Hmm. It was the <laughs> church um, model that I thought household to household, Mm. Uh, post-building, uh, reaching into the grassroots level of a city. Um, I wanted to see what that looked like. And there were many things about it that we did love. But my wife picked that up weekend one, mm. and I probably uh, didn't pick it. And uh, in hindsight, as someone has said, our wives picked it before we did. So what was it about the men that weren't picking <laughs> the situation? And uh, <laughs> Women no, are a little uh, more intuitive. Nothing new there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nothing new there, is there. <laughs> but it was very interesting. And, and my wife is a clinical psychologist and uh, very intuitive. And so that was the first thing that she said that. And I felt, well, oh, maybe. But uh, we went ahead anyway. And uh, that, but from there on, I think we started to eventually see some things. And we were there because I think they thought they were assessing whether we would be the kind of people that would plant a church. Mm. But at one level, we're also assessing them because we would have to come back to Australia in a year and figure that out, whether we should be involved. Mm. I know when we spoke earlier, um, I interviewed this you this week for a, a piece that I published about Acts 29 and, and some of these things that have come to light. Uh, you mentioned, or you likened the crowded house to the Hotel California. Tell me what you mean yeah. by that. Yes, um, for those of a particular age, uh, welcome to the Hotel California. Um, you can check out any time, but you can never leave. I think that's the key to me that makes it so hard in these settings in churches like this. Um, one of the boasts of the crowded house was that you come in by the front door and you leave by the front door. So you can leave um, speaking to people and making sure that relationships are intact. Never saw that happen. Our experience wasn't that. And anyone who did leave uh, consequent to that, subsequent to that, who we had spoken to, never left that way. So people had said to me, how do you leave the crowded house? And I said, through the bathroom window. <laughs> you kind of got a scurry out. You make an excuse to go to the bathroom and you push your belongings through the window and you scarf it down the wall. Because once you're out, you're out. When you have a deep community like that, it's very hard to leave. But when you do leave... It's over, and that was the shock, I think, for lots of people so that we found out subsequent to us, but it was our experience as well that when you did leave, it's over, and you feel spat up on the shore wondering who you are, what you're supposed to do next, mm. and, uh, and where to go, I think. Mm. So 
one of the characteristics I know named by some former staff members at Acts 29 who worked under Timis was this idea that they should give him unconditional loyalty. And that sort of raised a red flag for me because mm-hmm. when I was uh, reporting on Harvest Bible Chapel and James McDonald, he actually made all the elders in the midst of my investigation sign this document pledging unconditional loyalty to him. And they all said how great he was. And, and, you know, for a lot of people, I guess it was meant to allay fears. Uh, A lot of us read that and went, whoa, who do you sign unconditional loyalty to? Was that the sort of thing that you experienced as well at the crowded house? Yes. And I think it it runs you in slowly. And uh, it's not that you would go in there saying, well, I'm going to give unconditional loyalty to this person. And it's not said first up or this group, but eventually it, it, comes to the fore, and so that word was used often and about loyalty being demanded, and I did say at one stage, loyalty is for lapdogs and henchmen. We don't do loyalty. It's not part of the fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> um, loyalty can cover lots of things that shouldn't be covered <laughs> over, in a sense, mm. and uh, that was central to it, and I, and I look at how that happens, and I, I, it never happens on day one. It happens in the context of a web of community and network and um, vision that's shared. And it's very hard then to extract yourself from being loyal because if you show disloyalty, you're putting a lot of things at risk, not just a, uh, a difference of opinion. You're putting uh, your place in a community and perhaps your place at the locus of that community, the center of it, because I think in those kind of settings, the proximity you have to the center of it uh, becomes increasingly important. The more you see that it's some sort of kind of game, you almost imagine a uh, sort of a mid- medieval or mid, you know 1500s Vatican setup where your position to the center is is kind of important, mm-hmm. and you will kind of play the game to make that uh, make sure that you're at the center of that setting, and loyalty comes into that sort of thing. Hmm. And control seems to be a big part of this, too. You, you called it heavy shepherding. Um, I've heard it called, I mean, all of this is kind of within the umbrella of spiritual abuse. But where did you see the control sort of crossing over a line? Uh, yeah, look, I think it's in the minute decisions of life. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we experienced that we thought was great going into the crowded house setting is you're, you're coming from an atomized Western individualistic Christianity where you feel like um, everything is uh, very thin, that relationships uh, can be quite thin, and you're going into a setting which is thick community, what I call you know, thick and rich. Mm-hmm. Um, and it feels like um, you're going into a setting that's completely different to that, and you say, well, we'll make big decisions together. We won't ghost each other suddenly at church. We are thick community together. And there's something compelling about that, especially what we experienced in an English city with students who were from out of town. Everyone leaves their city and goes to another university. Uh, lots of migrants, um, lots of uh, refugees in Sheffield. It was mm. the kind of city that attracted a lot of people into it who were, as I said, uh, time-rich and relationally poor. So they had plenty of time and not a lot of people. <laughs> and you could plug into that and do all of life through those people. But it's when it starts to bleed into where you should live in that city, whether you should go on holidays to that place, what kind of car you should buy, it sort of becomes layers that you don't even think about giving away to other people. And in the sense, for us going into that setting, as a nearly 40-year-old couple who'd been independent and in ministry for a while mm-hmm. and working in professional fields, that was there was something... slightly intoxicating and naughty about it at one Mm -hmm. level, but the the deeper we got into it, the more we were a little bit cautious. And uh, our caution grew over a series of incidents, I think, that just, I guess, in the end, made me sleep with one eye open, Hmm. if that makes sense. Just watching, just watching. Can you share any of those incidents that might be sort of indicative of the larger issue? Yeah, the, the key one for me, I think, was when I was wanting 
uh, a group of people come from the U.S., uh, from churches in the U.S. to visit the model, and I, one of them invited me to the States to visit. And so um, I just assumed it would be okay to do, and um, I just cleared that, um, just generally cleared that, that that's what I was going to do, and I had my own finances, we brought all our own money, and it would be for a week. Uh, we were living you know, within that, uh, one of the gospel communities already, that was because uh, there were gospel communities that sprang out of it. And it was pretty much a come in and chat with me comment uh, that I went to see Steve about. And I, I literally came out of that house shaking because mm-hmm. I was accused of so many different things, of being a law unto myself, of making decisions without referencing anyone else, and that wasn't the gospel. And... I walked straight to one of the other leaders' house and said, what's going on here? That is odd. Um, No one's ever said that to me before. Why would I ever be a law unto myself? And I challenged it at the time and said, well, if you can get 20 people in the room that you know who worked with you and I can get 20 that worked with me, we could have a debate about which of us is a law unto ourselves because I'm not that. Hmm. But you still come out of it feeling shocked and shaking Hmm. and... uh, the interesting thing of that, when I reported that incident in a blog post, I did a series on it five years ago, mm-hmm. it was that incident itself that resonated with several other people who'd had almost the identical conversation. So I think there's a suite of um, language and styles of talking about a person who doesn't exactly conform that gets used. Mm-hmm. And what I noticed most of all was that language gets narrowed down to a set of phrases and uh, shibboleths, I suppose, to describe people. And once that starts to happen, it's very hard to chase the narrative back about you Mm. and pull back those things that are said because it's then disseminated out to other people in the network. Mm. And once you have a narrative about you in a small context, like being in a small village, a provincial town, Mm. you become, um, there's a certain series of tropes. (laughs) This is who you are, this is who you are. And I think that's very dangerous. Hmm. And it's disorienting. And I think even when you said, you know, that it was said to you, this is the gospel. So this is where it becomes spiritual abuse because scripture is used to coerce, control and manipulate people. And but if you're in the midst of it, there's a part of you that says, well, this isn't right. Right. Um, And yet there's a part of you that's like feeling shame, even though maybe you shouldn't feel shame. And, and it's just, it's really disorienting. I mean, I've experienced a little bit of that. I've never been in a church that's had that much heavy control, but, but I've, I've tasted, tasted it. And I've interviewed, you know, lots of people that have experienced it. And did it take you a while to kind of deprogram from that? Yes, it it really did. And look, I I think as as someone who had been theologically educated by the time I went there and quite an an Australian personality, I'll let the the listeners uh, make what they will of the Aussie personality, as someone who's quite robust going into that, one of the anguished things I think afterwards is how did I allow myself to be drawn in to that level of control at an emotional level? And you do ruminate over it and you you know you go for a walk uh, thinking about it later and you never you know you never lose a replay conversation mm. and I think that's part of the issue that you go how did I allow myself to get into that situation and how did I bring my family into that situation and I it's that crossing that line between what the gospel is uh, in in essence and then so and then some of the variable fruits of the gospel you can do close community together according mm. to the gospel, but that's not the gospel. <laughs> mm. That's not the gospel. And when you blur that distinction, and when you blur that distinction with youngish people who are in a university town away from family, that can be most destructive. And mm. that, for me, is part of the problem. Mm. Well, you already referenced this, but you, as you were blogging about it, not calling out names, but kind of obliquely, uh, blogging about your situation, people started reaching out to you. I know some of them were from the UK, were refugees, so to speak, of the crowded house. But more recently, some people reached out to you, and they were former staff members of Acts 29. And I've published this story 
uh, just this week mm-hmm. on my blog, julieroys.com, if you want to read that. Um, but these five staff came to Matt Chandler, who is president of Acts 29. They were a part of his church, the village church. He was their pastor. And the staff come with a 19-page document outlining all of these things where they were accusing Steve Timmis of spiritual abuse. They're thinking they're going to get heard. Matt says he's, you know, reportedly told them that he's going to take it to the board and they'll consider it. Within a week, they were called in by two of the board members of Acts 29, fired and made to sign NDAs. And they went out underground. I mean, they were just so shocked, disoriented. They went underground and really didn't speak about it at all. It sounds like till some of them started reaching out to you. What about six months ago? Is that right? Yes, about that. Yeah. And so it it was it was because uh, someone had passed on some of those blog posts which I had written four or five years ago, uh, which is really the only thing I've said publicly about my experience. So I started writing a series that was about my missional journey in that uh, movement and. Um, Somehow I started to write, and I thought, no, I've got to be a little bit honest. And it was the G-rated version, I suppose. It wasn't like I was, um, you know, a, a bearing all, because mm-hmm. I didn't think that was appropriate. Mm-hmm. But there were enough comments in it that when someone had had a pastor then who had been fired, they got in touch with me, with me and said, that is exactly my story. <laughs> he said, I said to my wife, read this. <laughs> this is us. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that was crucial to me, I think, because it was saying that, uh, that it had be, been taken on in an Acts 29 setting as well. That seemed to me, obviously, that they had problems in the past, uh, big problems, and now this was something that had gone from a small location in Sheffield to a big location in a very influential network. Mm-hmm. And so they reached out and we started talking. And to be honest, it was recovery. Mm-hmm. It was people getting together and uh, sharing their stories just to say, well, we're not crazy, and we've moved on, but, gee, that shouldn't happen, mm. and uh, that is bad. And the more we probed about it and spoke to each other, we just heard names from each other that other people, uh, that we'd never heard before, and someone else had this experience. But for me, it was that initial uh, talk with people from the, and had been in Acts 29, and I thought, wow, this is bigger than just what happens in a, a northern English town. Mm. And, uh, the, and the pattern is there. And the pa- when you hear the pattern, you go through a series of feelings. You feel relief that you're not alone, but you're also feeling like, how many more? Mm. <laughs> how do you get to that pattern? Because there's nothing original about the way things were done with each of those people. It was like you could write that story and just change the names. And that's exactly what happens. And that, to me, is how these things work. There's nothing original about those systematic abusive systems. They're very strongly unoriginal uh, in how they do things. Hmm. And that is so true. The pattern is so uh, repeated and repeatable. And when you get people together, I know we we had a conference uh, just this past fall called the Restore Conference, and so many refugees from the churches in the Chicago area, megachurches that have experienced implosions and abusive leadership. And uh, I actually had a buddy who came from all the way from uh, Washington State, and he said, I sat down with some people who were from Harvest Bible Chapel, you know, had been there, and he said, they asked me to tell my story. I told a little bit about it, and it's like instantly all of them got it. And it was like we were at this incredible ministry around a lunch table. But it, it's because, and, and I've heard that phrase so many times, I now know I'm not crazy, right? Because you feel like it's your problem. Yeah. And even though you know it's not, you, you, you still feel it's like it's your problem. So just connecting to, can be healing. But then you've got this, this bigger thing that you're talking about. You're talking about Acts 29, an influential church planting network, 800 churches, not just in the U.S., but around the world. And so now you're hearing, okay, the guy who is the CEO of this, I knew he was abusive, but he's done this to a lot of other people. How pervasive is this? And we know, you mentioned it here, for those listening who haven't heard this story, Acts 29 was started by Mark Driscoll. Mark Driscoll was pastor of 
Mars Hill Church. He was removed by the Acts 29 board in 2014 for, quote, ungodly and disqualifying behavior. Not long after that, the Mars Hill elders uh, called him on the carpet for persistent patterns of sin and bullying behavior. He resigned. He's actually rebooted. <laughs> he's, he's at a church now in Phoenix. He's speaking at conferences. In fact, there's a Sticky Teams conference led by Larry Osborne. It's, it's billed as a premier leadership conference on, get this, quote, building healthy, thriving ministries. So that's a bit shocking in and of itself. Mm. But here's a guy, and I have a clip where he talks about, about the sheep and how he treats the sheep. And it's stunning, so take a listen. Here's what I've learned. You, you cast vision for your mission, and if people don't sign up, you move on. You move on. There are people that are going to die in the wilderness, and there are people that are going to take the hill. That's just how it is. Um, too many guys waste too much time trying to move stiff-necked, stubborn, obstinate people. Um, I am all about blessed subtraction. There, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. Um, you either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't going to stop. And uh, I'm, just a, I'm just a guy who is like, look, we love you, but this is what we're doing. There's a few kind of people. There's people who get in the way of the bus, they got to get run over. There are people who want to take turns driving the bus, they got to get thrown off because <laughs> they want to go somewhere else. There are people who will uh, be on the bus, leaders and helpers and servants, they're awesome. There's also just sometimes nice people who sit on the bus and shut up. Um, they're not helping or hurting, just let them ride along. Um, you know what I'm saying? But don't look at the nice people that are just going to sit on the bus and shut their mouth and think, I need you to lead the mission. They're never going to. At the very most, you'll give them a job to do and they'll serve somewhere and help out in a minimal way. If someone can sit in a place that hasn't been on mission for a really long time, they are by definition not a leader. And so they're never going to lead. Uh, you need to gather a whole new core. I'll tell you guys what, too. You don't do this just from your church planting or replanting. I'm doing it right now. I'm doing it right now. We just took certain guys and rearranged the seats on the bus. Yesterday, we fired two elders for the first time in the history of Mars Hill last night. They're off the bus, under the bus. Um, they were off mission, so now they're unemployed. I mean, you. this will be the defining issue as to whether or not you succeed or fail. I've read enough of the New Testament to know that occasionally Paul puts somebody in the wood chipper. Wow. Uh, it yeah. takes your breath away. I mean, you either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. That's the way the sheep are treated. I, I mean, I'm comparing that to, to what Jesus said about the, the one who, who goes astray and he leaves the 99 and he, he gets that sheep. I, I missed the part where he runs over the sheep. I mean, I just... Yeah. <laughs> But this yeah, is, and uh, when, if the bus is heading over a cliff, you, you might not want to be on the bus anyway. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Which it did in this case. But he's training pastors. He's training church planters. And I think that's the question. And everybody's asking right now is, is this indicative of the culture of Acts 29 of other pastors? Is it a one-time thing? What is it? And I know you've said... Um, Steve, you, you know some Acts 29 pastors there in Australia who are wonderful guys. I know some here in the United States who are wonderful guys. So it's yeah. hard to Look, say. I, yeah. It's hard to, yeah. Look, and that, uh, several of them have reached out to me, and I know them. And they're beautiful people, and they lead. You know, you don't plant a church in Australia because it's going to be massive quickly. It's going to make you a lot of money. It's a deeply secular place that has a a history of chewing up churches and spitting them out <laughs> in some senses. In many parts, Perth, where I live, is very secular. There are other places where it's got a lot of money. It's, uh, it is like heaven on earth. No one really needs Jesus. And you, when you plant a church here, you don't go into it thinking this is going to be some sort of uh, leverage to get somewhere influential. 
So they go into it to, for good reasons here, I think, um, and, they're, and they're good guys. But when you hear that comment, part of what I think as I listen to that, and I think of 1 Peter 5, you are, there's a chief shepherd coming, <laughs> and everyone is an under-shepherd who's looking after those sheep. And that's the paradigm that goes from Ezekiel 34, that the rough sheep who are leading, the chief shepherd himself will come and shepherd the sheep. God himself says, I'll come and shepherd my sheep. Those should be warnings that that kind of under-the-bus language is, is dangerous. And it's particularly dangerous, I think, in the current context, because as evangelical churches or the gospel in many places has lost traction, it becomes compelling that if you can get a bunch of people together in a room like Driscoll did and tell them, these individualistic people you're dealing with who let you down all the time and who do this and are wandering off, unless you can corral them with a strong vision and a strong hand, this church thing is going to fall apart. And if you're in struggling in a church where you can't feel that there's any traction, that's, uh, there's something uh, very uh, compelling about it. And you get drawn into saying, that's the way we're going to do it. So everyone's writing notes on throw people under the bus, and uh, they go back to whatever church setting they're in, and they uh, throw someone under the bus, and then they're uh, astonished that it turned out really badly, <laughs> and that no one trusts them. Mm. So I, I think as I hear that, I wonder, how do you get to that point? It's not like I didn't listen to a lot of Driscoll sermons when I was uh, younger, listening to what he was saying, but by that stage, I thought, N- you know, no way, that's not what you do to the sheep. Because you don't own them anyway, so you have to be very careful what you do with some the property of someone else, I think. Hmm. And the good shepherd gives himself up for his sheep. He sacrifices for his sheep, and yet, yeah, yeah this dynamic, and, and I get it, too. I mean, I've been on staff at a church. I know how hard the job is, and I know mm-hmm. what the pressures are, um, but running people over the bu- by the bus, I mean, in a lot of ways— Now I'm looking to what happened to these five staff of Acts 29 five years ago when they came forward with these concerns. They kind of got run over by the bus. And even talking to one of them this week, it it still hurts. It really hurts. And I think, yeah, when that word mission becomes the thing, the mission of the, the, becomes the biggest thing out, then everything else is expendable at that point. And I, th- I think we've, we've really bought into those terminologies so, so strongly that we, the, the mission ends up being um, uh, well, what the CEO thinks we should be doing, and uh, that's the mission we're running with. And it just comes away from what the Bible says about uh, God's people anyway. I didn't hear uh, any nursemaid language from Mark Driscoll about uh, as Paul said, <laughs> that he was like a nursemaid to the Thessalonian church. Mm-hmm. None of that. Uh, 1 Peter 5, not lording it over those who are entrusted to you. That word, not, those term, not lording it, and that word entrusted, surely would be a, a safety break on that bus. But it seems like it's been one of those uh, you know, uh, horror movies where the, all, all the kids are on the uh, school bus and there's an evil clown driving it. It's kind of <laughs> become that kind of <laughs> awful experience. Mm. And when you get spat up out of that and you're sort of washed up on the shore, you think, how did that happen to me? How did I allow that to happen to me? Mm-hmm. And, uh, but you do. And I think with the, the, the five who, who lost their roles, it's, that's the level it's at. It's, it's, the mission is bigger than you, and that's a certain... It's not like none of... There's not a kernel of truth to some things that are being said. If everything is really wrong all the time, you would never buy into these things. But there's enough um, language and terminology and recognition of things that is right that you latch onto. Otherwise, you would never latch onto any of these things. Mm-hmm. It's then what forms around it that... Um, becomes the problem, and then it becomes very hard to disentangle yourself from it. Hmm. And so we have an organization that was started by Mark Driscoll, and we kind of see what his philosophy of ministry was. Before this, before he made those statements, actually three years earlier, in spring of 2011, Matt Chandler, who's currently the president of Acts 29, um, he was speaking at the Elephant Room One conference. This was a conference that was held by the now-disgraced, very bullying, very strong-handed 
uh, Pastor James McDonald. And he made some comments, and these are, I would say, equally breathtaking. Because I know some of you masculine macho CEOs right now have something going through your mind. Let me say this also. The Village Church runs between seven and 8,000 adults on a given weekend. There are 90 men and women on staff that are managed across three campuses. To use the shepherd sheep analogy that's in scriptures, I don't know how much you know about my job, but I'll say it just nicely like this. The shepherd rarely gets to play in the middle of all the healthy sheep when they're having a barbecue and playing a volleyball game. He's on the fringes where the wolves and the sheep with rabies are. So a great deal of my week is spent walking through the tragedies, heartaches, and sins of other men and women. On top of it all, constantly taking sniper-like shots from men and women who disagree with how we do things. Sometimes to a level that's just crazy. So two weeks ago, I sent out an email that said, hey, on Saturday nights at 7, we're going to try uh, to utilize technology a little bit better so that we might have a dialogue. So after the sermon, you'll be able to, or you'll be able to text in questions while I preach, and then I'll answer them as soon as the sermon's over. Um, really, there are two motives behind this. One is to dialogue a little bit about what we're talking about because that's healthy. Number two is I don't want to lose touch with where you are. And so what happens on Saturday night at 7 is I actually get to tweak my message moving into Sunday morning because I'm going, oh, I didn't answer that question. That's a question people are asking. So we, we thought it was really healthy. I got this real hateful little spiteful email email this week that said, this sounds like a last ditch effort of a dying church to entice the next generation to come. (laughs) The reason I giggled is because in that email, I also said, hey, we grew by 1500 last weekend. So do you see what I mean by crazy? Great. And then just because I have you, can I say this? We have not created a system here that hides from you. We'll receive any bit of rebuke and any bit of critique. but you sign your name when you send stuff in, you immature, weak little cowards. You sign your name, you silly, pathetic little boy. You don't take jabs behind an alias. Who does that? So in any realm, we're not above reproach. In any realm, you can question, you can come in and have your questions and don't take jabs at us behind some alias where you sit in the crowd and do nothing, you narcissistic zero? Sign your name. I probably need to get some help. Let, I'll, get, I'll work through that. I'll work through that. Yeah, so they're laughing, but it's not funny. It's not funny. It's, it's, it's so sad. I mean, I hear that, and I'm like, either this guy's under in a tremendous amount of pressure, but what I'm hearing is contempt. Yeah. Yes, and look, yeah, that, I guess when, when you've been in ministry for a while, you get frustrated with people who do things, and uh, they don't sign their name to something, or they just are frustrated, and it, it feels like, here's the solution, uh, here, go hard, go even harder and harder, but to hear that tone is to then give permission to it everywhere else, and it, it just, you know, I, I can see the pressure that people are under in ministry, and I can see that unsigned emails do that, but that anger and level of anger that then is applauded gives permission for that to spread out. And I think you've got to be very careful how that goes because that is that is very, very dangerous way to, to speak. But it, it's, there's something underlying there as well. I mean, it, that's got to speak to what the anger is in, <laughs> underneath the surface of you at that point. And I, and I wouldn't want to be sanctifying that. And that's partly maybe part of the movement that came out of the Young, Restless and Reformed. And I've, and I've said the safety for me growing up in ministry was the old settled and reformed, the old guys I knew who <laughs> were just steady, who probably never listened to a podcast and certainly you know, weren't wearing um, funky clothes. And they just were steady. And they took those hits and they... Uh, for right or wrong, they were able to just quietly go about things without letting that totally affect them. And I think of you've got to take your comfort in the Lord in those situations, not get angry like that. And I, I can understand that that's hard, but that that sets a tone for a movement that seems at odds with the gospel that's coming from the platform. 
that's always what I struggle to figure out. Mm. I've said this before, but I once had an editor that told me that if you're not getting any hate mail, then you're probably not saying anything. And so I, I get a, a decent amount of hate mail. And, you know, you have to learn to deal with that. I'm sure pastors get an awful lot, too. But you're right. You, you have to absorb the violence. I used to have a pastor who would say that. And, and you do have to sort of do that and bring it to the cross and, and give it to Jesus. But what we're seeing is not that. And we're seeing that this bullying behavior is, is somewhat epidemic. In fact, you write, and, and I said, I, I love your blog, and I encourage people to go to it. It's Stephen, spelled with a P-H, McAlpine, M-C-A-L-P-I-N-E, dot com. Fantastic blog. But you wrote a post called Bully, Volume 1, October 11th, 2019. And this is what you wrote. The biggest risk to conservative evangelical church movements today is not the hostility of a toxic external culture. A far bigger risk to the movement, if recent sobering conversations I have had are any indication, is the internal toxic culture. In short, evangelical church movements have a massive problem with the workplace bully at the moment, and it's only getting worse, or at least it's only now being revealed and at a rate of knots. Bullying narcissistic leadership is wreaking havoc on evangelical in evangelical church movements, and when it comes out, it goes viral. We've seen it Driscoll, McDonald, Hybels, etc., and all these men are just the tip of the iceberg. Hence, for every big fish, there are several small fry throwing their weight around. For every newsworthy story that it that makes it into the pages of the Chicago Tribune, there are countless little stories, big stories for those people and their families, but not even worth a footnote on page eight in the scheme of things. Yeah, and here we are. <laughs> and that's, that's probably... And to be honest, you throw those uh, blog posts out like coded messages to say to people, uh, you're not alone in this if you are struggling with it. it it's a big issue. And... I, I think as I, as I wrote that and as I look at that, I, I especially say that the pressure that um, evangelicalism is under in the culture feels like we need a, a killer app or some quick fix to be able to resolve that loss of traction or that loss of credibility in the culture. Now, in Australia, there's, there's never been too much traction or credibility for evangelicals. We're a small minority group. But you'd certainly feel that it's Christianity slipping away. We need to really, really nail down uh, a hard, strong leader who's going to be able to, you know, pull this thing together again. And I, I think that then becomes so central to it that you will break as many eggs as you need in order to get that omelet. Mm. And uh, I, there's part of the problem. It just becomes a means to an end. And mm. uh, that, that's when I write those sort of blog posts, I go, I'm going to get a lot of. Uh, feedback. It just happens. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it reminds me when you say we want that strong leader, it, it just sounds like the Israelites wanting a king. Like we always want yeah. someone other than yeah. than God to lead us. We, we want a man, somebody that we can that we can see, that we can idolize in many ways. And, and we, we're getting kind of the just desserts of that. And I know We've been talking a lot about Acts 29, and they certainly have a real issue right now. I think Matt Chandler is under a lot of heat for the way that he treated past staff, for even how this recent firing happened with Steve Timmis. Um, The initial announcement was very glossed over, made it almost eulogize Steve Timmis and made him sound like he's a great guy and everything was fine. And then when uh, Acts 29 heard that, oh, it sounds like the media are going to be reporting how abusive he is. Then they sent out another announcement saying, oh, yeah, it's because of reports of bullying and abusive behavior. And a lot of people are saying, well, okay, it happened five years ago. You knew about this and you didn't do anything. What happened this time? What's different? And I haven't been able to get those answers. I've asked for an interview with Matt. I uh, haven't got granted it. And even some of the, the former elders haven't granted it. But again, it's not just Acts 29. It is the whole evangelical world, yet we're talking about Acts 29, and so I'm just curious, um, what do you think needs to happen right now with this organization that's under, you know, it's really beleaguered right now? Well, it's interesting that you say um, it's like Israel wanting a king, 
because what I think has happened in that sense is that uh, just as uh, Israel behaved like the nations and were warned not to be like the nations and looking for a king, they were told not to go back to Egypt to get their horses. And I think uh, organisations, perhaps like Acts 29 at the top, have taken on the, the, the horses, I suppose, if that's the right term, the, the frameworks of the hard, heavy CEO business model, which uh, is very cut and, cutthroat, uh, etc. It does what business does in, um, in CEO, hard, heavy, narcissistic leaders at the top, and it, it implants that because it gets stuff done. And I think the first thing organisations like an Act 29 will have to do is bring things into the open and stop doing the non-disclosure agreements that we even saw at Willow Creek that Scott McKnight had spoken out against mm-hmm. as well last year. And it's pretty much where do we get to the point where NDAs become the norm in a Christian organisation in light of the fact that on the last day everything's going to get revealed anyway. Now, I understand that organisations need to, you know, once you get to a certain size and the way things go with laws and policies and procedures and legislations, you have to put certain things in place. But you get there incrementally by just doing, you know, oh, it's worked, I'll do it again. I'll make sure that the, that we're, the brand is on message. And it's the branding problem that's, that's the issue. It's all about protection of the brand. Mm. And once we come away from that and say, actually, brand Jesus isn't looking so good here, <laughs> and never mind brand Acts 29 or whatever it is, because of these things, um, that's where we, I guess, we go back to the basics. Somewhere along the line, we need to humbly repent and publicly say we were wrong. And I don't think we've got the kind of culture in evangelicalism that can do that because we've aped the rest of the culture, the celebrity culture. And so what comes with the celebrity culture is cancel culture. Um, When the leader who's suddenly shamed is exposed, they're thrown under the bus Mm -hmm. and everyone says, it wasn't me, it wasn't us, it was that person. (laughs) We had nothing to do with it. It was systemic, we were enablers, but now we had nothing, we had no idea. We had no idea. And I've said that, yeah, and I've said that before, and I wrote about it nearly three years ago um, after reading some articles about the, the reboot of Acts 29 in the light of the Driscoll mm-hmm. problem. And I said at the time that when uh, the enablers surface again after the perpetrator has been kicked out, they present themselves as the solution to the problem of which they were part. Yes. And or the victim. That's the DNA issue. They yeah. were victims. We were victims too. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's, there's perhaps a truth to that, but mm-hmm. that's why you're a leader. You stand up and say no to things. Mm-hmm. So um, that's part of the problem. And it, it, I think things like that are very hard to get out of the DNA of the system. There's, you create cultures and they're very hard to shift. And the first thing you shouldn't do is then go on public media saying, here's how well we've changed the uh, change the culture here because that's just branding. That's just that. I think that's problematic. You probably need to take uh, your stripes, your lumps, as you'd say in America, and take take your medicine and just go quiet for a long time on it, and just be a little bit quieter about how you do things. But that didn't seem to be part of the package in an organisation that size. It seemed to be let's keep this thing going loud and show loudly that we've changed very quickly. And I don't think that's possible. Hmm. Well, I hope and pray for Acts 29 that they will do exactly what you're urging them to do, to repent, to come clean, to not just own what's been publicly exposed, because that seems like the only time anything gets owned anymore, but to own yes. the things. And and to, that's and not repentance. Conf- no, yeah. it's not. Confess the stuff we don't know about. Confess it all. You know, get on your face before God. And there was just a story that came out this week in Christianity Today looking at, you know, what's happened to Willow Creek and Harvest since the scandals there. And it's just sad. You know, attendance is down. Finances, giving is down. They're not thriving. And, you know, I look at that and and I say, yeah, because there wasn't there. There was doing exactly what you just said. The cancel culture, the, oh, I didn't have anything to do with it. And it's still, you know, it's like the, the, the top managers are gone, but the middle managers just moved up. And now it, it's yeah. part of the same system. And it just, it grieves me because this isn't, an, this isn't a corporation, right? This is 
the church. This is yes, the hope of think, the world. Yeah, yeah. and uh, that's the, the, the great hope of it, because you look at the mess that Israel got itself into in the Scriptures, and through repentance and brokenness, God brings them back and brings them the shepherd they did need. But they took, you know, how many lessons did they not learn? Mm. Um, I'm just about to start reading the book of Judges, and I go, in my yearly reading plan, and I'm going, do I really want to read this at the moment? But (laughs) but there's a sense, too, that, and I've said this to people recently, that these sort of exposures are like mini-apocalypses, mini-reveals. They are God's kindness and severity to expose this in this age in such a way that you have the opportunity to do some repair work. Because the biggest issue you have to say is that these people do not believe their eschatology. They do not believe that one day all things will be exposed and the chief shepherd will say, let's cross to the videotape and have a look how that went down. Um, Because God's kindness, he gives us these exposures now in order to uh, save us from a future shameful exposure. Mm. And I, I, that's where we've got to learn the lessons, that do we need to do another round of this? Do we need another organization that's big in uh, 18 months' time to do a huge reveal that everyone on social media is just so shocked by? Do we? Re- it's becoming almost tedious to read about it. Mm. And I would love for me not to have to do this work anymore investigating corruption and abuse in the church. I would love to become irrelevant and obsolete. So that's that's what I'm hoping, that Christian organizations will will take these things to heart. But, Steve, we have run out of our time, but this has been a fascinating discussion, and and I pray a helpful one for the rest of the church and for those listening. So, Steve... Thank you so much, and I'm going to let you go and let you go to sleep now. <laughs> but yeah, thank it you. might take a while, but we'll take yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much, Julie. No, God bless. Well, and thanks so much for listening to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Roy's, and if you'd like to find me online, just go to julieroy's, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com. Hope you have a great day, and God bless. <laughs>